So if you're new here, we study on Wednesday night for years and years and years now. We study through what we call the Old Testament, what Jesus called the Law and the Prophets. Why would a bunch of Christians want to study the Old Testament? Well, the roots of our faith are in the Old Testament. Okay, there's a little axiom that is shared that says the new is in the old contained and the old is in the new explained. Okay, what God has done in Jesus, the first words of the New Testament, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, the son of Abraham. So the first words of the New Testament take us back to the first of these people that God chose to raise up to bring salvation to the whole world. Okay, God started with one man named Abraham. He was actually from modern day southern Iraq, the Ur of the Chaldeans. And he said, I want you and your wife to come with me. I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you offspring, I'm going to make, your, make you into a mighty nation. I'm going to give you this land that's before you. I'm going to make your name great, Abraham. So 4,000 years ago, God called this guy from Iraq and said, I'm going, to, I'm going to do things through you that he said, in fact, in you, Genesis chapter 12, in you, Abraham, all families of the earth will be blessed. So God's hearts in raising up these people, choosing them, is to bring blessing to everybody, and here we are tonight, okay? Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob wrestled with God, his name was changed to Israel. That's where the name Israel comes from. It was Jacob's name before he wrestled with God. And God put, him, put his hip out of joint, he crippled him for the rest of his life, but he became a prince with God. Okay. When there were 70 people, the famine hit the land. Okay, 4,000 years ago, God promised them a certain land, and he said, I'm going to make a people out of you. And from that land and through those people is coming salvation for everybody. What God has done through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through Israel, in Jesus, their Messiah, if you're a Christian here tonight, you're a, you're a believer in Israel's Messiah. <laughs> That's what a Christian is. Kind of interesting, isn't it? When there were 70 people, a famine hit the land that God had given them 4,000 years ago. And they, through the story of Joseph, his brothers threw him in a pit. They were jealous of him because he was his father's favorite. Joseph was sent into slavery in Egypt. Egypt, right next door to Israel. <laughs> okay? He was sent into slavery there. He was in prison 14 years, unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife, he, the, this person who had bought him as a slave. But God was raising him up. He became second in power to the Pharaoh of Egypt. And he was, God used him to provide for his little family. Instead of dying in the famine, a worldwide famine, they were, 
brought into Egypt, and they ended up staying there for 400 years and multiplied from 70 to many scholars believe about a million and a half people. And the Egyptians started putting to death the little baby boys because they were multiplying and so greatly. And that was where the story of Moses came in. Moses, his mom put him in a little basket on the Nile River to avoid the, the genocide against the, the people there in Egypt. And God raised Moses up to deliver them, to take them out of Egypt, to bring them back into the land that God had given them hundreds of years earlier, 4,000 years ago, 1,500 years before Christ, God was bringing them back into the land that he had promised to Abraham, that Abraham had already dwelt in. But they wandered in the wilderness and the whole generation died off in the wilderness, complaining, full of unbelief. They were a mess, they're a mess. The chosen people of God in the Bible are a mess. They fail, they're weak. That's one of the themes of the Old Testament. The other theme is God is faithful. And he doesn't let them go. He spanks them, but he preserves them because it's through them that's coming the Christ, the Messiah for the whole world, for me and you. So God's faithfulness to them is his faithfulness to bring salvation to me and you, no matter who you are. God so loves the world. Always has, still does. It's about his salvation for the world. The whole, that's the big theme. So they came back under Joshua. They came back and re-entered the land that was given to Abraham. And this was 3,500 years ago from here. And they went in and possessed what God had given them. And then they began to prosper. Incredible prosperity in the land flowing with milk and honey. Poetically, that's how they, they describe the land. It flows with milk and honey. God himself waters this land, and oh, they were blessed. And you know what? The blessing brought complacency. And then it brought about a, a sinfulness. And in their sinfulness, they got miserable. And there was another 400-year cycle of the people in the land where they would cry out to God in the, their misery. And as they were filled with sin, turning their back on God, they became weak and their enemies would come in and do raids on them and afflict them. And they cried out. And God would raise up a, what was, were called judges. That w they were deliverers. And this happened for 400 years until they finally said, you know what, we want to be like all the other nations. We don't want to be your special people. We, 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 we want to be like everybody else. And they begged God for a king. We, we, be a, we don't want you, God, being our king. We want a king like all the nations have with all the pomp and the circumstance. And God finally told Samuel, don't be offended, Samuel. They haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. I want you to give them what they're begging you for. Find the best looking, tallest guy in the whole country and, and make him king. You know? And that was Saul. He was a total disaster. And God finally got frustrated with Saul because God was, had a heart for the people to preserve them and he removed Saul and he said, I found David, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. 
And Samuel there anointed David as king. And David had a son named Solomon. And when Solomon died, when Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was split in two. Okay? The, the northern tribes split off from the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The northern tribes fell fastest and hardest into idolatry. Hardcore idolatry where they turned their back on God. They were away from the temple. They, weren't, they, they were meant to return to the temple and worship in the way that God prescribed them to worship by Moses. God revealed it to Moses. This is how I want you to worship. I want you to take a sacrifice, the blood from the altar, and sprinkle it in this, in this holy of holies over the Ark of the Covenant. And the whole thing was an interactive model of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It, they had this in the middle of their national life and worship life for hundreds and hundreds of years. This, this, this pre-shadow of the gospel. But the northern tribes broke off. And so they weren't coming to worship as God prescribed at the temple through the sacrifice that was sprinkled over the mercy seat inside the Ark of the Covenant, right? You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? There's been movies made about this box. Inside the box were three symbols of man's sin, failure, and rebellion. And when the blood was taken off the altar and sprinkled over the sin, the failure, and the rebellion of the people, God would manifest his presence there and meet with the people. That's why God meets with us. Because the blood of Jesus Christ, the one that the blood of those sacrifices pointed to, it covers over my sin, my failure, and my rebellion, and God meets with me. God's spirit is upon me, and he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. It was all right there in the midst of their life. But the northern tribes had turned away from the worship of God that was revealed there in the temple in this pre-shadow of Christ, and they departed from God. Hosea, we're, we're in the book of Hosea right now. Hosea was a prophet in the north, into the northern tribes. He lived in the north. He preached to the north to repent from their idolatry and to return to the worship of God in the sacrifice as prescribed by God through Moses, because this is the way we come into his presence. Why was God so you know, stuck on them, worshiping him in truth? Because there's no other way to know your sins are forgiven, you know? In idolatry, the people cowered before their idols in fear, offering their little sacrifices to these gods they made up in their mind, and there was, it was only fear. It's perfect love that's revealed in the sacrifice that drives out fear, that brings us near, okay? This is why it's so important that we hold to the gospel, that, that when people pervert the gospel, we call them out on it, because there's no other way that I can know my sins are forgiven except that God has laid his life down in love for me. And his perfect love drives out fear as I realize God 
has shed his blood. God, the blood of God was spilled to take away my sins. I'm forgiven, so are you. Whether you're walking in it or not. Okay? Well, Hosea lived and prophesied among those 10 northern tribes, warning them, calling them to repent, to return to the Lord. And finally, in the year 722 before Christ, 722 years before Christ, God brought a severe chastening that he had said was coming through the prophets. And the Assyrians came in and carried away the 10 northern tribes into captivity. And again, all of this we saw when we studied in 2 Kings. Hosea had seen all of it coming. Many decades later, the southern kingdom finally fell because of their sin, and they were taken away into Babylon. And we've been looking at that a lot lately, because Daniel was one of the captives carried into Babylon from the tribe of Judah, from the southern kingdom. Okay, the book of Hosea is a collection of some 25 years of Hosea preaching to the northern tribes. Okay, it's almost all poetry. This book is almost all poetry. In fact, 38% of the Bible is poetry. Did you know that? 38%. You have to read it in the genre that God revealed it, which is poetry. It's laid out in three major sections. Chapter one, we saw God call Hosea to a shocking assignment. Okay, and Old Testament prophets, man, they had the weirdest ministries. Hosea was called to a shocking assignment to illustrate what Israel was doing to God. God who formed her, God who raised her up, God who blessed her with every rich blessing, God who was a husband, a good husband to Israel. God called Hosea, whose name is from the same root as Joshua, which is Hebrew for the Greek word Jesus. Okay, so Hosea's name is connected to Jesus. Linguistically. God called Hosea, who's a picture, a type of Jesus. God called Hosea to marry a prostitute. This is the shocking reality of the book of Hosea. God called him to marry a prostitute, a gal who who would continue to return to her prostitution. And notwithstanding Gomer, her name was Gomer, to, to add to it, right? That name's wrecked for me because of Gomer Pyle. What was that show? Mayberry RFD, right? Andy Griffith and Gomer Pyle, golly, you know, do, do, do. This poor girl was the, named Gomer. I don't know if anyone here named Gomer, any girls? Okay. God called Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Notwithstanding Gomer's chronic unfaithfulness to him, Hosea was instructed by God to love her, to go after her, to search for her, to pay off her debts to her lovers, to commit his love. Hosea was called to commit his love and his faithfulness to her over and over again. And God says the whole thing, The whole thing, the broken and then mended marriage, the restored 
marriage and all the children they have, it was all a prophetic symbol of God's relationship with Israel. So Hosea didn't just preach, but he had to live out this message that was preaching to the people. This is what you're doing to God. And this is how God is towards you. God had been nothing but faithful to Israel, redeeming them out of slavery in Egypt, bringing them to Mount Sinai where he made a covenant with them, and then bringing them into the promised land. And what did they do? They took all the wealth and the overflowing blessing of the land of milk and honey that God had provided and they devoted it in worship to the Canaanite God of Baal. This is what they did. And God had legal grounds to break his covenant, to divorce Israel. And we're gonna see in this tragic poetry that that idea was pondered, but God, instead of doing that, instead of divorcing Israel, God said, I'm gonna pursue Israel. Again, I'm gonna renew my covenant with them. And he says why, it's totally and completely because of his own love and compassion and his faithfulness. Hosea, the book of Hosea expounds and illustrates what all of this means. He says the consequence of Israel's turning their back on him will be a forthcoming defeat, being taken captive by the Assyrians. But there's hope, there's the hope for a future restoration that one day, Israel will once again turn back to God from their idols. And Hosea says that God is gonna place, and we're gonna see this passage, not tonight, but in a coming chapter. God says, and in that day, I'm gonna place over you my messianic king, who is of the line of David, who will bring everlasting blessing. Remember the first words of the New Testament? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The whole thing is flowing towards Jesus. Israel has rebelled and God is gonna bring severe consequences is Hosea's message, but God's own covenant love and his mercy are greater and more powerful than Israel's sin. God's covenant love, new covenant love and mercy are greater than your sin and mine. That's why we continue on with the Lord. That's why we continue, okay? We saw last time in chapter one, verse one, the word of the Lord came to Hosea and it gives the time, a time stamp, okay? In reference to the kings who were reigning in the north and the king who was reigning in the south. So that you know when Hosea received these prophecies, okay? It was during the time of Jeroboam, the king of Israel. It was a time of political and economic prosperity, but a time of terrible and tragic moral and spiritual decline, decay. It was during this time, God says to Hosea, I want you to marry Gomer the prostitute. I want you to marry her. We saw that in chapter one, verse three. And he did, he married her. And she doesn't give up her prostitution. James Boyce said that if Hosea's story cannot be real, 
because some people are like, this isn't real, this didn't really happen. And they say because God couldn't ask a man to marry an unfaithful woman. Boyce says, then neither is the story of salvation real because that is precisely what Christ has done for us in marrying us. And if I'm honest, and I like to be honest, because who am I fooling? <laughs> I am the prostitute. You know what trips me out when I read the stories in the Bible? A lot of people read their gospels and they put themselves in the place of Jesus. Okay, I'm, like John the Baptist said, I'm not the Christ. Okay, and I want you to know I'm not the Christ. Because a lot of people look at their pastor because their pastor wants you to think he's the Christ because we got these ego issues. And then when you find out he's just mortal and he's human like the rest of us, then they hate the guy because we hate our idols and we find flaws in them. I love what John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ. <laughs> you know, I must be in decrease and he must increase. I'm just a messenger pointing to him. Okay? When, I, when we read of Jesus encountering different people, we're the person he's encountering. I'm the woman at the well who's looked for love in all the wrong places. And the Messiah, Jesus, has loved me to himself. I'm the blind man who needs Jesus to give me spiritual sight. I'm not Jesus. I'm the guy he's ministering to. I'm the prostitute. And here's the, iron, here's the weird thing. I'm also the Pharisee. I bash the Pharisees all the time, but I have a Pharisee that lurks in my own heart. And every time I read the scripture and I see Jesus confronting these guys, something in me gets confronted. I'm, the Bible makes me uncomfortable. It hammers me and hurts me, and with mighty blows, it converts me and changes me. I'm the sinner who needs to be saved, and praise God, the Savior has come. His name is Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We saw last week two sons and, and the daughter that were born to Hosea and his prostitute wife in their unconventional marriage. And we looked at, as we finished last week, the significance of the names of their children. Je Jez it's supposed to be Jezreel, which, mean, which means scattered, Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy, and Lo Ami, which means not my people. These three names represented God's judgment against a faithless Israel. But God promised that he would ultimately restore. These, these children were being born and given these names. They're, you're going to be scattered. And there's not going to be mercy. You will face the consequences and God even said, you're not even my people. You don't, you, because you don't want to be my people. And yet chapter one ended with these words, if you remember. Yet the number, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place. It will come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are sons of daughters of the living God. And then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. Remember the kingdom has been split. 
the northern and southern. God says there's coming a day when I'm going to gather the north and the south together again in one. And, and appoint for them, so they will appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel, which means scattered, but it also means as the farmer scatters and sows the seed. The name will be changed from a connotation of judgment to that of new life. Okay? That's how we left off in chapter one. Jumping into chapter two, it says, verse one, say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. So this shows that the redemption will be complete. The one that were says, it was said of them, you are not my people and no mercy. The names of the, the two, these two of the, the kids. I'm gonna, I'm gonna change their names where it will, you will be called my people and mercy is shown. The child Jezreel had his name redeemed from scattered to sown. And then the next two children, Lo Rumaha, no mercy, and Lo Amib, not my people, had their names redeemed. Will be, it will be, God says. And Israel would once again be regarded as my people unto the Lord and mercy is shown unto them. What was a sign of judgment would become evidence of redemption. Next he goes back into the present indictment here in their, in their day before they were scattered and taken captive by the Assyrians and he says bring charges against your mother. Bring charges for she is not my wife nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children for they are children of harlotry for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully and so Israel here as a whole is represented as the unfaithful wife and her children represent the individual Israelites. And listen, justifying herself, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my linen and my oil and my drink. I survive off of what my lovers give me is her excuse. The bread and the water, the clothes, the oils. It's so sad. Because it was God who had given them so much. It was God who had given them so much. But sin makes us stupid. You know, and now she's like going, I, but I get so much out of this. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths, the pathway to her lovers. And she will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. So God says, here's what I'm gonna do to my wayward bride. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hedge her up, I'm gonna hedge her way. The path she goes, I'm gonna hedge her in with a hedge of thorns. 
I'm gonna put a hedge of thorns between her and her lovers and between her and her sin. In other words, it will really be painful to get to the sin that she just goes after. It would feel like painful. It's actually a sweet expression here of God's love. Therefore, I will hedge her in. She can't stop herself. She can't help herself. It's God saying, I'm, I'll put, I'm gonna put barriers, a barrier, a painful barrier. God has done this in my life. I've been a believer for 45 years. And I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. How crazy do I get sometimes? Like the old hymn, take my heart now, Lord, and seal it, seal it to thy courts above. You know, I've prayed before God. I know, when I first met Pastor Ed, he, was, he actually told me, that he, said, he prayed to God and said, God, if I ever start drifting away into some stupid sin, just kill me. That, that always struck me. He's like, he's so bad, wants to honor God with his whole life, all through his life, that he said, if you see me, Lord, going off into something that would destroy my family and my ministry and your reputation, just take my life. <laughs> I remember him sharing this, and I was like, wow. That's how bad he wants to just honor God all the way to the end, you know. God's saying, I'm gonna make it frustrating and painful for you to get to your lovers. And then she will say, I'm gonna go back and return to my first husband, to the Lord. For then it was better than it is for me now. Then she will say, what am I doing? You ever said that to yourself? You ever say, you ever like go off the path and then you're like, why did I do that? Isn't that an interesting question? Why did I do that? You know why you ask that question? Because that's not who you are. That's not who you are now, your identity in God, who you really are now. But we have this sin that's in our flesh and I found myself before, why did I do that? Why? And you're in this agony of sin. Sin is pleasurable for a moment but then it all falls in on you, doesn't it? Why am I pushing down this path? It's all pain now. Ouch. Ah. Sin brings sorrow. It's pleasurable for a moment, but it brings sorrow. And then it's subjected to what we call the law of diminishing returns. Okay? At first it's like, wow, this is amazing. Oh, this feels so good. The dopamine, you know, the adrenaline rush. All the stuff that we get addicted to. But it's like Oreos. You know, when I eat a whole sleeve of Oreos, the first 15 are amazing. But I found that the next five are like, ah. And then the last 10, total regret. Like, why did I do that? It's called the law of diminishing returns. The first one, it's like, oh man, I love Oreos. The second one is just as good. The third, the fifth, the tenth. But man, there's a, there's a the law of diminishing returns kicks in and the last five or 10 are like, why did I do that? I feel like throwing up. I hate Oreos. I never wanna see an Oreo again, <laughs> you know? 
In a relationship with God, like a marriage, sometimes the grass can seem greener on the other side, even when you have the best spouse. The best spouse. And the best spouse is a flawed spouse. The, the best spouse is not God and won't ever be able to deliver to you what only God can deliver. But the grass sometimes seems greener. Idols can seem very attractive until God exposes them and we feel the emptiness of living out from under the blessing of God. And we're like, what am I doing out here? What am I doing? Why did I do this? The law of diminishing returns has kicked in and now you, there's just this emptiness and pain. And then we're ready to return to our first husband. And he says, she'll come back because I'm gonna set her up with thorns all around her. I'm gonna bring her back. She can't help herself, I'm gonna help her. For she did not know, God says, that I gave her the, her grain, that I gave her the new wine and the oil and multiplied her silver and her gold, which they went then and prepared as an offering of worship to Baal. Can you feel God's broken heart? I gave her everything she has, blessed her with so much prosperity, and then she took it all and offered it as an offering to this demonic, false god called Baal. God's heart is broken. This is his great unselfish love for Israel, for his people. Even though Israel took what God had provided and prepared it then for an offering to Baal, he still loved them. Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season and I will take back my wool and my linen and give to given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver from her from my hand. And I will also cause her mirth to cease, her, her rejoicing in like a, a joy, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts, and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, these are my wages that my lovers have given me. Everything I gave her that she's attributing to her lovers as payment for her prostitution. And so I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall eat them for I will punish her for the days of the Baals that she was offering every blessing I'd given her to these Canaanite, this Canaanite God to which she burned incense. She will deck herself with her earrings and jewelries and she, and she went after her lovers, but me, but me, she forgot. But me, she forgot. And this is being spoken at a time, the time when Jeroboam II reigned in the north, and there was incredible prosperity. It was a time of incredible material prosperity. But she used her prosperity for her idolatry and her pursuit of the pleasures of sin for a moment. So God says, I'm gonna pull it away from her. I'm gonna take it away. What will God do? Will he utterly smash her and destroy her? What will he do? Therefore, behold, verse 14, God says, I will allure her. I will allure her 
and bring her into the wilderness where she can think, where there's no distractions. I'll bring her into a season of loneliness, of separation. I will allure her and I will speak comfort to her. Who is like God? Who is like God? Nobody, nobody that I've ever known, okay? Nobody would pursue a, a wife that's been so set upon prostituting herself like this. But God is different. God is not like you, but a million times bigger, okay? The idea that God is holy, you know, the Bible talks about God being holy. It means he's altogether other. He's completely different. That's what it means, that God is holy. He's not like you. He's not like me. He's not like your dad. He's not like the best man you've ever heard of. He's in an altogether other category of his own. To whom will you compare me, says the Lord? Or, or what likeness will you make of me? I am the holy one of Israel, which means nobody loves you like God. Nobody will put up with you like God will. Nobody is as merciful towards you as God is. This is God, only God would do this. He's, he's like, I'm gonna go after her. I'm gonna search for her. I'm gonna allure her into the wilderness where it's quiet and I'm gonna speak comfort to her comfort. You know what we would do? We would allure her to some place where we could give it to her, man. Give her the lecture. Angry words. Waiting for angry words. And all that comes out is grace and comfort and love. Because it's the goodness and the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Not some angry preacher slamming you on the head. It's the goodness and the kindness of God that we see in the, the most vivid illustration in Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what brings sinners to God. Not, not the preacher beating you on the head. I'm gonna allure her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. Spurgeon says here, this is a singular kind of power. I will allure her, not I will drive her, not even I will draw her or I will drag her, but I will, or I will force her. No, Spurgeon says, but I will allure her. The allurement of love, he says, surpasses all other forces. And this is what the Holy One of Israel, this is what God who is not like us does with us as we fail, as we flounder, as we fall. He goes and gets us. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope and she will sing there. Her joy will be restored as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. It's interesting here, he says, I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Achor means trouble. The valley of Achor, or the valley of trouble, was where Achan, if you remember when Israel came into the promised land, right, after Jericho, they went to Ai, and they 
got defeated at the second city. And Joshua, God revealed it to him that there was sin in the camp because this guy, Achan, he, he took some gold bars and some Babylonian garments that he had found and God had told him, I don't want you taking anything when you conquer Jericho. I don't want you taking anything. I want it all to be given unto God as a sacrifice. I want it to all be burned. But this guy saw the gold in the, in the Babylonian garment and he took it and put it in the bottom underneath his tent. And it was revealed that this Achan had done this. And they eliminated Achan. <laughs> they got the sin out of the camp and then they were victorious again in their battles and as they possessed what God had given them. And it was there in the valley of Achor. And God says, I'm gonna give her the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Where, the, where there was such failure, there, there's gonna be hope. There's gonna be hope right at the point of their failure. And she will sing there. She will sing. This is what grace does to our hearts. This is what God's redemption does. It causes us to sing because it causes us to relax. It causes us to rest. We're not all stressed because he saved us. He loves us. He pursued us so heartily. She will sing there. She will have joy again. And it will be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. Notice this. <laughs> God was not satisfied. He's not satisfied with a fear-based, obedience-focused relationship with his people where they thought of him primarily as master. He wants a relationship where we think of him primarily as a husband. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals that she's been worshiping, these false Canaanite demonic gods. I say demonic because part of the worship of Baal was a sac they would sacrifice their babies, the God of prosperity, right? It's, it's totally demonic, the crazy stuff that can be made from the mind of man, you know? But in Hebrew, the name Baal comes from the word master. It was the Baals, the idol of the nations, which wanted this master-slave relationship with man, with man. And all paganism, all paganism has the people in fear, cowering before the God, bringing the little mud pie, the little candle, Ugh, you know. You gotta bring the sacrifice to your God. You gotta, first you gotta make your God. And then when you move, you gotta carry him to where you're going. Then you gotta set him up and fasten him so he doesn't fall over. And then you gotta bring your little offering. And God says, I don't want anything from you. This is paganism. Okay, worship of the true and living God. He says, I don't, I don't want anything from you. There's nothing you can give me. <laughs> You think that I need an offering from your grimy little hands? No. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. All the offerings you bring that I called you to bring, they represent what I'm gonna do for you, not what I need you to do for me. I don't need anything from you. Do you realize God doesn't need anything from you? 
This is a pagan concept that God needs something from you. You, me, look at me. I am little, smaller than the smallest little speck of dust. I don't know if you know how big the, the known universe is. There's 10 times 50 billion trillion stars in the observable universe. The Milky Way galaxy that we're a part of, that's 100,000 light years across. If you're going the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years to cross our galaxy, and there's billions and billions of galaxies. And we're on this little dot called Earth, going around the sun. The sun is 1.3 million times bigger than the Earth, and I'm this little tiny guy on the Earth in the Milky Way galaxy that's part of billions of galaxies. And God needs me to bring him a mud pie? This is paganism. This is paganism. He needs me to cower in fear? Read Psalm 50. Because Israel had switched into this mentality. And they, they were bringing the offerings that God said, I want you to bring with that mentality that God needs the blood of bulls and goats. And God says, you think I need the blood of bulls and goats, Psalm 50? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I was hungry, God says to Israel, would I ask you? I'm God. Those sacrifices are speaking to you of what, who I am and what I will do for you in Jesus, my Messiah who's coming. I am gonna lay my life down for you. I'm God, I serve you. You don't serve me. You see the difference? There's a lot of Christians that have a pagan mentality. I gotta go to church. It'll make God happy. I gotta take communion. It'll make God happy. No, communion is not what you're doing for God. It's what God's done for you. He shed his blood for you. His body was broken for you. God serves us and breaks our heart in love for him. And then we serve him in the power of his love that has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Do you see the difference? Okay? And as we approach God with the sacrifice, it's a reminder of Jesus Christ who sacrificed his life. You see? We offer up sacrifice and it speaks to us of who, what he's done for us. It's not what we do for him, it's what he's done for us. We love him because he first loved us. You see? This is how it is. And so God says, in that day I'm going to take out of her mouth the names of the Baals. Master. It will no longer be Master Baal. They kept you cowering in fear in this paganistic type of a thing. But you're going to say, God, you're my husband. Take care of me, Lord. You provide everything I need. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things on the ground, the bow and the sword of the battle I will shatter from the earth. This is speaking of the coming kingdom age. Okay? This is what he's seeing. When nature will be at peace again. This isn't now. And I will make them lie down 
safely. I will betroth you to me forever, God says. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. God's gonna be victorious in our lives. He's not gonna let us go. Even though we're like the prostitute. He'll hedge us in. He'll put barriers. He'll allure us into the wilderness. He's going to win in the end. He's going to win. He's going to win us over. This is the picture. It will come in that, pass in that day, verse 21, that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. You're, you're going to experience the blessing and power of God in prayer. The earth will answer with grain and new wine, with oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. Okay, here the Lord promises that a glorious redemption of the name Jezreel, which meant scattered, it will be redefined with its double meaning, which is sown, like seed that is sown. It will be used to describe a good scattering of seed being sown. And then he says, verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the earth. And I'll have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Wow. Amazing stuff. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for this prophecy. We thank you, God, that in and through all of these things, we get to know your heart as you've revealed yourself. We thank you, God, that you are like nobody else. There's nothing we can compare to you, and help us stop comparing you to things we know. Lord, you're altogether other. You're different. You're in a category of your own. Your love is like no other love. Lord, like John said, behold, look at this. What kind of love is this? That we are called sons and daughters of God. That we, sinful, selfish, arrogant people have been made. What kind of love has done this? And that is what we are right now. And what we will be, we don't, we can't see it yet. But when we see him, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Blow out of our minds, Lord, all the things that, all the pagan ideas that limit us and keep us at a distance and cowering in fear. Bring us to that place. Bring us to the place where we realize you're our husband, you're our God, you're the lover of our souls. We praise you, God, that you're patient with us, that you're working in us. We pray that you would continue that good work. We ask it all in the name of Jesus for your glory and our greater joy and everybody who agreed said out loud together, amen. Hey, if you're here tonight, you've never received the Lord and you know that tonight is your night, I'd be happy to pray with you. I'm gonna be on the edge of the stage here. Please come down. I would love to pray with you, even give you a Bible for free. Ask nothing of you. Just pray with you. The rest of you guys, say hi to somebody on your way out.
maybe a high five, whatever you do, a hug, if you dare. And we'll see you next time, Hosea chapter three. God bless.